ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Good afternoon. Welcome to The Country Hour. Welcome to February already. I'm Selena Green with you to one o'clock. Now keep your eye out for some new trailers that'll be hitting the road across South Australia. Apparently they're the latest in biosecurity line of defence and you'll learn more about them in just a moment. And some producers are hoping a market for the Australian white will evolve here in Australia, similar to how Wagyu or Black Angus has with cattle. There has been some work done with the CSIRO with the melting point of the fat, which is health benefit with the breed. But, um, but yeah, we're not seeing any benefits price-wise for that yet, but I'm hoping down the track it might be something that will um, come in. That's to come. But first today, South Australia has added an extra layer of defence to combat animal disease and protect supply chains issues across our state. New biosecurity response trailers are being rolled out across South Australia and Annabelle Francis has the story. The new response units are part of the South Australian government's $6.8 million commitment to prepare for and respond to possible future emergency animal disease incursions. While primarily intended for deployment if exotic diseases such as foot and mouth disease and lumpy skin disease occur, the trailers also provide the necessary equipment to respond to other disease incidents across the state in a range of livestock species. Minister for Primary Industries Claire Scriven says it's an important added step of protection for the industry. So if there wasn't an outbreak of a disease such as foot and mouth disease or another emergency animal disease outbreak, the impacts on the community would be huge. We'd be looking at 8,000 jobs here in South Australia uh, and up to $80 billion impact nationwide. So it's uh, a huge amount. And of course, the, uh, for consumers, the cost and availability of meat uh, would be really, really heavily impacted. So it's so important. And this next step in this part of the $6.8 million investment by the state government in, uh, in guarding against these diseases is incredibly important for all of us. Minister for Primary Industries, Claire Scriven. There will be three trailers, one at Clare, one at Murray Bridge and one based at Struan in the southeast. Acting Chief Veterinary Officer Dr Elise Spark says the new trailers will be set up to allow for a range of different scenarios. All of the trailers are kitted out with a range of equipment and supplies for sampling and diagnostics and also for personal protection and decontamination, so cleaning and disinfection. Also a range of equipment for quarantining property um, and also controlling access onto and off of a property. Um, but the trailers can be also set up as mobile offices. Um, they can act as um, staging areas for resources in regional and remote areas or forward command posts um, so to manage um, responses in, again, any area of the state. 
Dr Sparks says the trailers will allow them to start dealing with a risk quickly. Yeah, so in emergency disease outbreaks, there's really um, areas that make the biggest impact to basically the um, outcome of that outbreak is early detection and rapid response. So these trailers really fall into the rapid response. They're able to be um, deployed immediately to where they're needed around the state and support a team of people, so up to 10 people um, could be supported by these trailers. She says while having these trailers available, it is also important for livestock producers to know what to look out for when it comes to animal diseases. These trailers are really important for rapid response, but early detection um, is critical and we certainly rely on producers um, for early detection. So I would encourage uh, producers who know their stock really well to make sure if anything unusual is noticed that they report those signs uh, as soon as possible to either their private vet or to PIRSA through our 24-7 emergency animal disease hotline. There's a range of signs depending on the species impacted um, and the disease. So the key is that producers don't need to know every clinical sign of all of the emergency animal diseases. What they need to know is that something's unusual and abnormal um, and report that as soon as possible. Acting Chief Veterinary Officer Dr Elise Spark. Livestock SA says it supports the proactive step taken by the state government. CEO Travis Tobin says this approach is essential for safeguarding the well-being of animals, protecting economic interests and maintaining the overall resilience of the livestock sector in South Australia. So essentially, uh, I guess, between industry and government, efforts around emergency animal disease were really focused about 18 months ago when we had uh, notifications of lumpy skin disease and foot and mouth disease in Indonesia and they're now endemic in our northern neighbours in Indonesia. So what it means for the livestock industries is they're essentially trade diseases. Yes, nobody wants them, but they really impact trade. So we'd lose access to markets overnight. And the reason that's such an issue for industry is because over 70% of beef and sheep meat is exported and over 95% of goat meat and wool is exported. So you can imagine without, with losing markets, it basically cripples your industry overnight. Mr Tobin backs up the statement that early intervention is key to protecting the industry. So with emerging animal disease, the secret is really early detection, containment, eradication and proof of freedom so we can get back to normal trading conditions as, as soon as possible. So obviously with any disease, whether it be uh, a disease we already have that we're trying to manage or an emergency animal disease, so an exotic disease, um, it's really about the more eyes the better. So that's where producers play a critical role in being the eyes on the ground to work closely with government uh, in determining where there is an issue and then getting on top of things really quickly. And I guess that's the benefit of these mobile units is we can then regionalise things, mobilise quickly and, and localise the issue. The, the purpose of the early detection is really to identify and then contain. So if you can take the, take the resources to the problem, you obviously reduce um, the, the effect of spread. He says while the trailers are a welcome inclusion to the protection of the state, Livestock SA will continue to work with the government to add even more protection into the future. Oh, so some of the things we're talking with government now about are things like, again, the biosecurity management, containment, eradication, continuum process. We've identified a need for washdown facilities for the movement of livestock and containment and trans-shipping hubs and those sorts of things. So we're currently working on a proposal that might be suitable for South Australia, but more broadly in a national, a national network of those sort of requirements. That's Livestock SA CEO Travis Tobin ending that story from Annabelle Francis. It's 12 minutes past 12. 
Well, the Australian white sheep breed was first bred back in 2008 to fit the dry Australian conditions. Now, the breed has since generated a lot of interest, with a stud ram being sold back in 2022 for $240,000. It's a shedding low-maintenance sheep. The Australian white is said to produce leaner meat, and some producers are hoping to market. Well, our market for the Australian white will evolve in Australia, similar to how Wagyu or Black Angus has with cattle. Well, grazier Casey McCallum is running the Australian white in South Australia's Southern Flinders Ranges and spoke with Kate Higgins about why he's decided to give them a go. I picked up a lease block and there was no shearing shed. Uh, The country's fairly wooded and pretty high rainfall. So, um, yeah, merinos were sort of off the table and cattle I didn't think would do very well there. So I went with the um, Aussie white. They're a bit better in the wet weather, I got told, with their dark hooves um, than the white dorpers. So they just seemed like a good fit for the area. And how many are you running? There's 300 breeding ewes there. And you're also running merinos. So for people who don't know much about Aussie white, how do they differ? What are you seeing? There's certainly a lot less work. You don't have the fly strike um, problems and you don't have the crutching and the shearing, which the shearing can be, a, um, I guess, a profit loss for not having it. But at the same time, if yeah, you don't have to get them in for that. It's just, it's almost like running them as cattle, really. You just deal with the lambs. And are you seeing similar sort of lambing percentages? Uh, yeah, pretty pretty similar. They could be a little bit better. They're certainly better doers on rougher country, like it's pretty scrubby, wooded yeah, land where they're running and they um, have a, a heaps bigger range of things they eat, that's for sure. So they're a meat sheep. Is there a different market for the meat or potential markets that you're seeing? Pretty similar to um, just the fat lamb market, really, like the crossbred market. There has been some work done with the CSIRO with the melting point of the fat, which is health benefit with the breed. But um, but yeah, we're not seeing any benefits price-wise for that yet, but I'm hoping down the track it might be something that will um, come in. Have you uh, had any killers for, for your family and do they taste any different? <laughs> yeah, we um, well, we used to have the white dorpers and we've gone to the Aussie white, but it all tastes good to me. That was grazier Casey McCullum from Bullaroo Centre. Braden Gilmore is the chairman of the National Australian White Sheep Society and is speaking here about the work that they are doing to better understand the qualities of the meat. We're, uh, me personally, we've been doing a lot of work with MLA, sheep genetics, comparing our Australian whites against all other breeds in Australia, going through the resource flock where they're compared for eating qualities. And yes, the Australian white on average uh, is coming up extremely well on lean meat yield, intramuscular fat and shear force, uh, so tenderness. But like always, there's plenty more work to do. And it's just another tool that we can use to try and select an animal that's best suited to, uh, to the market here in Australia. You hear of different breeds of cattle customers having preferences in restaurants. Do you see the lamb market in, in Australia moving in that direction as well? Yeah, I I do. At, at the moment, I think there's so many different variations of Australian whites depending on what the maternal base was. So obviously it's still a, a very much a composite commercial industry out there. So they're not all showing signs of like the Wagyu would, but I think it's it's really important for the the producers of Australian whites to keep in mind that the Wagyu does need grain to finish to be able to get the marbling that they're chasing. And in the long run, 
Australia is going to need that grain for human consumption and we don't want to be breeding an animal that requires grain feeding to be able to finish. So that's where we're looking is pushing the animals that are doing it naturally and showing the right eating qualities without uh, without that grain feed. People been getting into them in say the last sort of three, four years and how have the prices been? Yeah, I think that's uh, a big part of the, the influx in the, uh, the, the stud uh, and commercial uh, enterprises that are coming in in the last two or three years is based on price. The, the prices obviously have been uh, hitting some highs due to people getting into them for that easy care animal. So that has driven a lot of a lot of people there. Obviously, a shortage in shearers, especially through the COVID years, uh, was a, a big factor as well because people are obviously struggling to get them. So they're looking to go for an animal that's easy care. As chairman of the National Australian White Sheep Society, Braden Gilmore, and he's speaking there with Kate Higgins. You're with Selena Green on the Country Hour today. The Australian Cabernet Symposium begins today, with events being held in both the Margaret River and Coonawarra here in South Australia. Penley Estate is hosting delegates over the next couple of days. The theme is focusing on ag tech and the way it can help those in the industry improve the quality and quantity of their vines and yields. Nuffield Scholar, viticulturalist and vineyard manager at Penley Estate, Hans Loder, will be uh, guiding a tour of his vineyards and sharing the ways that he's integrated ag tech into his work. He joins me now. Hansa, thank you for coming on the Country Hour today. Yeah, thank you for having me. And how good is it to have a symposium like this um, hosted in Coonawarra? To have a national symposium such as this held in Coonawarra really is a um, a fantastic uh, opportunity for the region to showcase uh, Cabernet Sauvignon on a national stage. And the theme uh, very much of this uh, symposium is focused around ag tech uh, and, and this is something very much integrated now into the day-to-day work in vineyards? Yeah, so as part of uh, the Cabernet Symposium, yeah, day two we're having a field walk and look, there's really been a, heat, a lot of excitement around this um, and it's been a coming together of a lot of ag tech businesses, um, similarly Wine Australia through their ag tech demonstration vineyard program of which Penley um, is one uh, and also like Limestone Coast Grape and Wine identified uh, through their regional partners program that there really is an interest in ag tech and understanding where its place is so you know um, right down to uh, we're also um, a representative from the Department for Environment and Water will be here so um, Dean Zevin for the team leader for water licensing will be presenting on the day and uh, he, he'll be talking about the, the broader management of the, of the unique aquifer we have down here in the limestone coast. But really the critical item there I see for producers is you know, identifying this use case. So um, there's plenty of use cases out there on farms, vineyards and the like. It's just um, understanding which ag tech is appropriate in which situation. Because there is a lot out there, and I think tomorrow on that walk, there's a few different technologies being demonstrated. Yeah, so we'll be starting out right from um, when delegates arrive to showcasing some of the cloud-based online biosecurity platforms for signing in. Uh, We'll have aerial imaging providers, things monitoring uh, water use and frost control, uh, and similarly just having general telemetry. So it's also in some, some ways monitoring a crop or a plant, in this case vines, but it could also be you know, what delivers value to a, to a producer might be just having oversight of their equipment and so being able to retrofit telemetry to motors, bearings, things like that so that they can 
see what's going on in the field at all time without actually having to be there. I understand your topic with your Nuffield scholarship was about robots and, and ag tech and, and all of the different uh, technologies available, but what to do with the data. That does seem to be a bit of a theme I hear a lot within ag is that there is a lot of ways to collect all this data now, perhaps even sometimes be a little bit overwhelming, the, the question and the challenge is what to do with it all. Yeah, absolutely. And so it does lead on uh, from my Nuffield uh, where I researched this question of data. And what I found is that there were three parts to data. There's the collection of data, uh, then there's the management of data, and then there's the presentation of data, so in a useful format. So today is actually focused on that first part, which is looking at, well, how do we collect the data in a representative way? So, yeah, very relevant. Um, I'll leave the management uh, for another day, but uh, we'll also be running through as part of this field data presentation of data in in useful ways in buying indices and things that provide produces real value. Mm. The technologies that you've adapted within your own practices there at Penley that have really been quite revolutionary or been extremely helpful in the way that you do what you do there? Yeah, and definitely an aim of the day is really to present a story of Penley's adoption journey. So the challenges, the opportunities or the potential efficiencies identified and the part in which ag tech played in that and how um, particular ag tech was identified as solving these challenges. Um, so for someone attending, it's a bit of a case of, look, they may decide to adopt a specific piece of ag tech that has been demonstrated on the day, but I'd also see it as you know, a really successful day if it just gets produces, uh, provides a better understanding of the place that ag tech plays and maybe thinking of their own business, because every farming business is different, and then how to go about identifying these gaps and, and these data gaps really as well, um, which will provide the greatest value to their, their own business. Well, Hans, thanks so much for joining us today. I know you've got a, a busy day and, and tomorrow ahead of you and lots of delegates coming, so I appreciate your time. Great to chat with you. No, thanks very much, Selena. It's been great to speak to you today. That is Penley Estates Vineyard Manager Hans Loder, and he was speaking there about the Australian Cabernet Symposium, which starts today. You're listening to Selena Green on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Well, let's find out what happened at the Mount Campus, Mount Compass Markets, I should say. We're joined for that again by Elsie Adamo, who has the report. Good afternoon, Elsie. Good afternoon, Selena. Numbers doubled this week as agents offered 1,025 live weight and open auction cattle. The usual trade and processor buyers, specialty butchers, feeders and restockers provided good competition throughout the sale. Prices were again generally in the vendor's favour, with most classes increasing in price this week. The bulk of the yarding comprised 487 steers, 291 heifers and 202 cows, with some outstanding drafts of heavy cattle on offer. Vila steers sold from 240 to 333 cents, as Vila heifers lifted a further 10 to 15 cents to sell from 190 to 301 cents per kilogram. Yielding steers sold 15 cents dearer as they made 220 to 315 cents, with yielding heifers lifting 20 cents to sell from 190 to 301 cents per kilogram. Manufacturing steers gained up to 30 cents on a much better quality offering as they sold from 177 to 299 cents. Grain steers sold 10 cents dearer, selling from 220 cents to 301 cents, with grown heifers selling mostly firm and making 210 to 289 cents per kilogram. 
Light cows sold firm, making from 160 to 187 cents, as medium cows also sold mostly firm and making from 179 to 277 cents. A good selection of heavy cows sold up to 30 cents dearer, as they made from 277 cents to a top of 305 cents per kilogram. Light bulls sold from 205 cents to 269 cents, with heavy bulls selling from 189 to 259 cents per kilogram. This has been Elsie Adamo filling in again for John Traeger for the MLA's National Livestock Reporting Service. Thanks, Elsie. Elsie Adamo there with those latest numbers from Mount Compass. You're with Selena Green on the South Australian Country Hour on this Thursday, the 1st of February, and it's 24 minutes past 12. Time to head off to the Weather Bureau. Our forecaster today is Hannah Marsh. Hello, Hannah. Hi, Selena. Well, what's the story as we uh, kick off well, the last, what is it, the last calendar month of summer? Yeah, absolutely. Well, we've got a ridge of high pressure over the waters to the south and this is continuing to result in relatively cloud-free skies across South Australia. We did have a little bit of low cloud, particularly about coastal parts uh, this morning, but this has continued to clear. There is just a little bit of wind um, and a wind enhancement, particularly with the sea breezes. So we do have a strong wind warning for the Spencer Gulf for those sea breezes this afternoon. But there is also a bit of wind about the northeast of the state as well. So associated with that, we could see uh, some possible raised dust in the far north of the northeast pastoral district, particularly as we head into the afternoon period. Uh, otherwise, having a look at some of the maximum or some of the temperature that it's reached so far. It's been up to 24 degrees at Seduna, 23 at Port Lincoln and Wyala so far. It's been up to 30 degrees at Cooper Pedy and Woomera, 26 at Renmark and Clare, uh, 24 at Murray Bridge, uh, 21 so far at Mount Lofty and High Marsh Island. It's been up to 25 degrees at Kingscote and 22 at Mount Gambier. Now this high pressure system is pretty slow moving and as it uh, slowly drifts to the east we're really looking at stable conditions. That uh, potential for seeing some raised dust again tomorrow in the northeast of the state. Otherwise generally uh, dry days. There could be some light morning showers possible about southern coasts but not much in it. Uh, again we'll expect some par- a partly cloudy morning near the coast but otherwise we're looking at a sunny day and and uh, temperature-wise, for tomorrow, we're looking at 28 degrees for Sejuna, 23 at Port Lincoln, 29 at Wyala, 38 for Cooper Pedy, 37 at Woomera, getting up to 33 tomorrow at Broken Hill, uh, 33 also for Renmark, 31 at Clare, 26 for Murray Bridge, 25 at Mount Barker, 21 for Victor Harbour, 25 also at Kingscote and 24 for Mount Gambier and partly cloudy there tomorrow. Then it isn't until Saturday that that high pressure system moves out to the east and the winds come around to the north and we really see those temperatures start to climb above average. Uh, So on Saturday we're looking at those above average temperatures. Winds will be much lighter as well but we will see uh, light to moderate afternoon sea breezes again for Saturday. 
then as we head into Sunday, that's really looking at the hottest day uh, in the outlook period. We're looking at uh, generally a dry and mostly sunny day at first. It will be a hot to very hot, as mentioned, with fresh north, north to northwesterly winds. But we do have a change that we're expecting to move through uh, really the south and west on Sunday and through northeast parts on Monday. It is a dry change, but it will bring cooler temperatures. We're also going to see some moisture associated with the ex-tropical cyclone move into the far northeast of the state. We could see some locally heavy falls associated with this on Sunday and Monday. In terms of cumulative rainfall totals until the end of Saturday, we're generally looking at less than 2 millimetres near southern coasts, with falls of 5 to 20 millimetres possible in the far northeast on Sunday. And as I mentioned, that chance of heavier falls in the far northeast corner, Selena. All right, thanks for that. Hannah, have the great rest of the day. Thank you. Same to you and your listeners. Hannah Marsh there from the Weather Bureau. Now the forecast for the western inland parts of New South Wales for tomorrow for the upper western district, a sunny day with southerly winds, 25 to 35 k's an hour. Overnight temperatures there falling in the low to mid-20s. During the day, they'll reach up around 40 degrees. For the lower western district, also expecting a sunny day with southerly winds. They'll be around 15 to 25 k's an hour before picking up and increasing to around 20 to 30 k's an hour in the morning. And then they'll become south to south easterlies and light in the late evening. Overnight temperatures in the lower western district, they'll get down to around 15 to 20 degrees. And then in the daytime, those temps will reach the low to high 30s. It's coming up to half past past 12 in this coming half an hour. What South Australian produce growers would like to see come out of this ACCC inquiry into supermarket pricing. You're listening to The Country Hour. For more stories from across the country, go to abc.net.au slash rural. On ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill, this is Selena Green. Selena Green. Hello. Now, how closely do you keep across the prices that the supermarkets are charging for fresh fruit and vegetables? Well, as you see that price fluctuate and increase, do you wonder what kind of prices the farmer is getting for growing that produce? Well, South Australian growers are hoping that an ACCC inquiry that's just been announced into supermarket pricing will get them a better deal. I'm going to speak with their representative body shortly. Also coming up in this next half an hour, a look at prescribed burns and whether or not they are in fact helping reduce or potentially increasing fire danger in native forest areas over the long term. So what we found is that forests that have been logged and regenerated, forests that have been thinned and regenerated, and forests that have been subject to prescribed burning all share this same response, and that is that there's this pulse of flammability after the disturbance, and that pulse can take several decades before the forest begins to return to a lower flammability state. There's more into that research to come, as I said, in this next half an hour. And if you'd like to join me at any time throughout that half an hour, my talkback number is 1300 222891, or you can send me a text on 0467 922891. Now this is all to come and more after your news headlines and Chris McLaughlin has them for you today. Hello Chris. 
Good afternoon, Selena. The federal government has imposed another round of financial sanctions targeting Myanmar's junta three years after the military seized power. It's targeting five companies which provide financial support to the regime and sanctioned two banks and three companies supplying jet fuel to the Myanmar military. U.S. authorities have confirmed an order to Boeing's manufacturing of its 737 MAX aircraft to look at all elements of their production. The Federal Aviation Administration will also examine how Boeing manages unfinished work from suppliers to its production lines. A three-week layoff has been recommended by the Australian Institute of Sport for Recovery from Concussion. It wants injured competitors to wait 14 days without symptoms before returning to contact training. A minimum period of 21 days is recommended before they return to competitive sport. The actor Alec Baldwin has pleaded not guilty to a charge of involuntary manslaughter over the onset shooting of a cinematographer in 2021. Helena Hutchins died during filming of the Western film Rust in New Mexico. Mr Baldwin denies pulling the trigger and says he's not responsible for the death. More ABC News at one o'clock. Thank you, Chris. Chris McLaughlin with those headlines. And when you are buying your fresh fruit and veg at the supermarket and seeing those prices go up, do you wonder how much of a cut the farmer who grew it is getting? Well, growers say the prices that they're getting paid for their produce are going down while their costs are going up. And they reckon if something doesn't change, it'll push many out of farming. This all comes as the ACCC has been directed to investigate supermarket prices. It includes the relationship between wholesale farm gate and retail prices. Angelo Damasi is the president of the Horticultural Coalition of South Australia, which represents thousands of growers across our state. Thanks for joining me and good afternoon. Oh, good afternoon, Selena, and to the ABC listeners. This ACCC inquiry that uh, has now been confirmed will go ahead. How necessary and timely do you think this is and do you welcome it? Ah, we welcome that uh, really well. I think it's something that uh, needed to be done, um, and especially on the light of uh, our recent data for the Horticulture Coalition, which we gather every year, um, you know, seen a price a reduction to growers of 21.6% across all the commodity groups. And, uh, you know, uh, when we look at uh, the 23 figures of 98 cents per kilo, uh, you go back to 2019 and growers were getting 96 cents. So uh, whilst uh, there's a lot of inflationary hap- uh, things happening out there in the uh, supermarket world, uh, there's certainly no inflationary uh, uh, CPI increases to growers. So, uh, you know, and this is on the back of uh, so many things like uh, uh, cost of fertiliser and cost of doing business, labour costs, obviously one large item. And so, you know, for us to be sustainable or growers to be sustainable, we continue to operate um, effectively and uh, provide uh, fresh produce, uh, you know, we need to be able to at least keep up with the cost of, uh, of production. Yeah, how frustrating is that for growers to say, well, we're getting paid less, the costs of things like you know paying for electricity and fertiliser, they're up, and yet looking at prices of what these products are being sold for on the shelves, seeing those go up, it must be an incredibly frustrating situation. Oh, it certainly is. It's uh, one of those areas that um, you're, uh, you're sweating tears and a lot of effort goes into growing a product and seeing what you're selling it for and then going into a supermarket uh, or the major supermarkets and seeing what they're selling it for, it's, uh, it's pretty disparaging uh, for growers. What sort of power, or are there any powers for growers in this well, situation? It, yeah, look, look what we're, we're calling for is uh, at, the, at the moment there is a mandatory code that uh, works well within um, uh, the uh, growing sector and the, the wholesaling sector. 
Um, when we negotiated that, uh, we we opted to actually ask for uh, that code to also include the major supermarkets. Uh, they don't come under a mandatory code; they come under a voluntary grocery code. Um, and there's some really strong powers on the ACCC uh, with a mandatory code. So, um, and that's what we're pretty much calling for because there's no point really having a mandatory code that only um, represents uh, you know 50 or 60 percent of the supply chain. What's the concern if there's no change into the current status quo? What's your worry about for those in the industry? Well, what uh, the biggest concern is that they're just going to um, pull up stumps and uh, call it a day. And I think that, you know we are seeing people walk, uh, growers walking off the land. Um, and uh, our, my biggest concern is you know with children and our growing children is that uh, we'd like to actually ensure that we continue to supply fresh produce. Um, likely produce produce uh, for our consumers, and uh, you know we don't want to go into like the UK where you chomp into a, a an apple in the UK and it's imported from all over the country um, and it's uh, flowery, um, and, that, and that's what you would get if uh, we start looking at uh, you know product that growers can't afford to continue to produce it. And you know we've had some considerable growers that have you know got a really good business. Um, and uh, you know, and, and they're they're starting to you know, look at the viability of their farms. And so, yeah, I think like uh, the prime minister has said, um, you know, if it costs a dollar, then you know, in terms of uh, having uh, the ability to price product uh, accordingly to uh, cost of production and, and making a little, a little bit of a profit. Um, but uh, I think it needs to be uh, where the whole risk is is really where the grower is, and the grower has the biggest risk and. Um, they get the less of the return. So I think that's really where, what uh, what we're calling for. Because obviously there are a lot of people just struggling with the cost of living, thinking, well, I don't want to be paying more for, for fresh produce. Um, oh, yeah, that's right. And, with- and we're, not, uh, we're not calling for that. Um, I think uh, the, the fact is that there's a disparity between what the farm gate is and the retail price. So what we're saying is the big profits that the supermarket, the two big supermarkets are making reduce your margins on fruit and veg um, and don't bring that back to the grower. So uh, so the consumer will still uh, pay uh, pay the, the right return, so there won't be an increase in consumer prices we can feel for that. Um, but, uh, you know, we'll, we'll just use potatoes as an example. Potato uh, prices last year was 45 cents a kilo, uh, and that's the farm gate price. So then let's just have a look at what uh, that price is at retail um, and uh, see if it's fair. So I think that's the, the, the key to get a fair price for products, um, uh, produce, so that uh, um, you know the supermarkets can take a hit a little bit on their profit. Angelo Damazi, thank you very much for joining us on the Country Hour today. Thank you. Angelo Damazi, President of the Horticultural Coalition of South Australia. Their members include uh, the South Australian Produce Market, Citrus SA, and the South Australian Apple and Pear Growers Association, amongst a number of others. Uh, it is 21 minutes to one. Well, as the ACCC begins this inquiry into supermarket prices, just how effective would a mandatory code of conduct be? Uh, as you may or may not be aware, at the moment, the supermarkets only have a voluntary code governing their relationships with farmers, but wholesalers operating through the nation's big central markets are governed by a separate court code. So has that made a difference for farmers or consumers? Well, the ABC's David Clawton has this report. Sean McInerney is a wholesaler at the Sydney markets and he buys and sells fruit and vegetables up and down the East Coast. He says the mandatory Hort Code, which was introduced in 2018, is working pretty well for farmers. 
you know, there's full transparency through the whole code. When you're trading on a product on a daily basis and you're in contact with your suppliers on a daily basis and they make the decision. He says instead of being price takers, growers can pick or choose which central market they want to sell in. They might have two or three uh, wholesalers in three or four different markets and they're not going to send somebody who's selling in 10 bucks tomorrow when someone else is selling in 15. But do they also know you know, what you've on sold it for and how much money you've made? Sure. Right. So that's something that's got to be published and, and be transparent and visible. Yeah. He says there are very few cases of product being rejected by wholesalers because it doesn't meet specifications. But that's a big problem for suppliers to the major supermarkets. We know what our suppliers are doing. They know what they're doing because they've, they've got a problem. They let us know. It's very, very, very rarely that happens. In your view, is that code working effectively to protect you and, and to protect your suppliers? Overall, it is. Uh, it is a little cumbersome. The problem is only about 40% of the nation's fruit and vegetables go through the central markets, and that's mainly sold to restaurants and independent grocers. Sean McInerney says 60% is going through the major supermarkets, and growers face a much tougher time selling to them. Um, the margins are pretty lean. Chris Cope is a consultant who runs Sydney Produce Surveyors, which monitors the prices of fruit and vegetable at the Sydney market. He says there are countless examples of price gouging and unfair practices at the supermarkets. Turmeric on the market is between 10 and about $15 a kilo. It's only a small line, but some of the shops are selling up to $50 a kilo. So the markup is pretty steep. Now we, we used to have growers come to us and complain they weren't being paid on time. A whole range of things. He thinks there's a dark side to specials at the big supermarkets as well because they're used to push the price of fruit and veg down at the farm gate. Various times of the year when there are things that are on special, what they do is they, they buy up as much as they can and they dominate the market with their buying power and then they go on special and that forces the market down. What about a mandatory code? We've seen that work quite well in the dairy industry. There's a horticulture code of conduct. Could a mandatory code, on the, like a grocery code, on the supermarkets make a difference? <laughs> it's very interesting. We had one, and we have one now, which I don't know how well it's policed. I haven't, I haven't seen much action on that. In horticulture, a, you mean? In horticulture. I've seen a couple of merchants prosecuted. But... When that time came to introduce that mandatory code of conduct, the chain stores talked their way out of being on it because they said they had their own code within themselves. So that the mandatory code of conduct now is upon the merchants here in the market, whereas Woolworths and Coles were exempt. He worries that growers aren't getting paid enough to be sustainable in the long term. Some of the buyers, some of the, the work for the chain stores, are a little bit ruthless, or very ruthless. And they uh, they force the market to uh, to pay you know virtually the cost of production. And uh, we had I had an instance some years ago where I actually wrote an article having a go at, at uh, one of the Coles buyers. And I said to them, "What? There's nothing wrong with high prices. Higher prices mean high margins. But when you push the prices down so low, it means that the growers don't get anything." And is concerned that farmers will be leaving the industry. You've got to have a sustainable industry. You've got to ha- have it for today and and, and for it to be reasonably priced, but you want it for tomorrow and next week and the week after and the year after that. 
Mick Keogh, Deputy Commissioner of the competition watchdog the ACCC, says several companies have been fined for breaches of the mandatory horticulture code, with the biggest fine being $240,000 for a South Australian potato processor. The problem there was under the arrangements or the contracts that Matalo had with its suppliers, they had no choice but to deliver all their potatoes to Matalo and where those potatoes didn't make the grade um, Matalo uh, claimed it had complete discretion in relation to what they would do with those potatoes and the price they would pay for it. So, so you find them 200 and almost quarter of a million dollars. Do you, did you follow up to see whether things got better afterwards? Uh, yes, that, that has substantially changed. They were required by the court to uh, remove uh, a, quite a range of onerous contracts and there have been four or five other uh, matters we've taken and uh, had similar results. So, you know, we think the improvement we see in relation to horticulture is that least traders are now putting their terms of trade up and entering into a horticultural produce agreement so that growers actually know what the terms of their uh, engagement with their wholesaler is. Previous to that, it was all word of mouth and a handshake. And of course, when things go wrong, um, it's very difficult to enforce word of mouth and a handshake. The other thing, which is a bit left field, but uh, Chris Cope mentioned that in the US, for example, they have antitrust laws. So the supermarkets in Australia, which have about a 30% share each, might be limited to just 15%. Is that something the ACCC is looking at? Um we look. It's too early in our consideration to to talk about what we might recommend, but certainly um, the the classic case in the U.S. antitrust uh, uh, is the Bell Telephone Company, which was forcibly broken up. Um, it was uh, it was uh, made to divest in and split itself up because it was considered too dominant. Now that hasn't been a, a power available under competition law in Australia. Um, whether it's um, something that might be considered, um, uh, you know, it's, I guess that's really a question for government, but it will depend, I suspect, on uh, the findings of our uh, investigation and, and, and that will be forthcoming in the, in the next 12 months. Mick Keogh from the ACCC. Meanwhile, there's a federal Senate inquiry looking at price-setting practices and the market power of the major retailers, and the deadline for submissions is tomorrow. David Clawton with that report. And there's a lot more to read about this. It's a pretty big issue. It affects a lot of people, uh, whether you're a consumer, whether you're a grower, uh, whether you're a retailer. Uh, And the ABC has collated all of that for you in a very handy location on the ABC Rural page. Go to abc.net.au forward slash rural. Scroll down and you'll see the section there on food prices. And there's a link to uh, a heap of articles there coming at this from some different angles, including one published yesterday that's proven very popular. And it may be a question you've been asking is why certain Australian vegetables, uh, fresh vegetables, are getting more expensive while canned food is remaining cheap. So if you've looked at a fresh Australian grown tomato and wondering why it's more expensive to buy that than uh, a can of tomatoes that have been flown in from overseas, well, there's a good explainer you can find on that website, abc.net.au forward slash rural. With the ABC Listen app, you can take the cricket with you anywhere you go. Off to the beach. Take the cricket. Road trip. Take the cricket. Museum visit. Shh, take the cricket. Seriously? You want to listen? <laughs> ABC Sports. Expert coverage of every test. Big shout, he's out. One day up. Australia is celebrating. And T20. Over the right for another six. Live and commercial free. So whatever you're up to this summer, take the cricket with you and listen big on the ABC Listen app. 
This is ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill. You're with Selena Green on this Thursday and it's 13 minutes to one. Well, the Riverlands Peak Wine Body is meeting with government and industry representatives today and they're discussing the next steps for future-proofing that region's industry. The meeting will explore how to implement recommendations from the Riverland Wine Industry Blueprint and this all comes as growers drove their tractors through the streets of Renmark yesterday in protest against low wine grape prices. Our reporter Eliza Berlage caught up with Riverland Wine Grower Engagement Officer Charles Matheson at the protest yesterday. He told her... It was great to see growers voice their frustrations publicly. There's been a, a fantastic gathering of growers. They're all particularly concerned about short-term survival. Riverland Wine and all the other stakeholders in the region and at the state level have delivered a, a blueprint, which we're meeting with uh, all the stakeholders tomorrow to develop an interim implementation plan. But the growers need short-term help. The blueprint is a medium to longer term plan. Uh, They've come together to try and raise the issue, raise how important, how desperate things are and what the crisis of the grape growers is in the Riverland, uh, which will lead to a dramatic economic effect right across the Riverland. It's not just grape growers, but everyone who relies on them. It was um, yeah, quite a heated meeting and, and quite hot conditions on Tuesday in the shed at Love Day. And I know some of the growers initially expressed some hostility to yourself and to Riverland Wine, but you did assure them that you are here to listen and you, you want to help. That must have been an interesting experience. Communication is essential for in any issue. And uh, the, the, we've really started to get the information flowing direct from growers. And there's a long way to go. Uh, for everyone concerned, but we're all short of resources. We all need to work together to make this thing happen. What these meetings seem to show is that there's this word of mouth that seems to be so strong amongst the wine grape grower community, and it's been hard to get some of them to come out to to other meetings that you've organised over the years. And it just shows a sign of of the crisis and desperation. Virtually all these guys have uh, off-farm jobs to try and support. All those off-farm jobs are struggling as well. Um, and word of mouth it just just emphasises how desperate things are. And I'm sure the, the growers will be very keen to, to hear some updates from your, your meetings because as one of the things they said was that they do feel that the support from the government and some industry bodies they feel is, is lacking. What would you like them to, to know about what you're doing at the moment? What, what we're really looking forward to doing is obviously implementing the blueprint, but... More importantly, in the short term, we're going to have a series of town meetings to communicate what the priorities are seen to be for the blueprint and to get buy-in from the community. Because without buy-in from everyone, it's not going to work. We all have to work together. We all have to share our views and come to consensus. When might we hear back from uh, anything from these meetings, uh, which will be happening tomorrow, today? Uh, we hope to have some news about CCW's new general manager and chairman in the next week or two. Once that's in place, we're going to work collaboratively with CCW to organise the town meetings to share uh, what, what's happening going forward. Thank you, Charles. Anything else you wanted to add? Please, everyone, just keep communicating. Keep, keep the doors open. Let us know if people are really struggling. There's lots of mental health issues out here. We've all got to support each other and work very closely together. 
As the Riverland Wine Grower Engagement Officer, Charles Matheson, he was speaking there to Eliza Bellage. If you'd like to read more about this, uh, we've heard it over the last couple of days from some of the growers involved in that protest. But uh, if you missed that, you can hop online, read what they have to say, see some video of those uh, tractors being driven down the main street of the centre of Renmark. Go to that website I mentioned before, abc.net.au forward slash rural. Deep in the Sahara, the male penguin does some kind of dance or whatever. Um, one note, it's not a penguin. Who cares? The Johnson family is unsubscribing from the streaming service we're on. It's getting too expensive. But how are they going to watch riveting documentaries? ABC iView. They have docos, comedies, dramas, bluey, and it's free. Free, like this eagle. Not an eagle. ABC iView. Always free. Always entertaining. Well, research from the Australian National University has found prescribed burning would be increasing fire danger in native forest areas over the long term. Now, this study by landscape ecologist Professor David Lindemeyer found burning caused damage to ecosystems, making them more susceptible to fire spread. Now, he says letting forests naturally grow and create natural fire resistance is a more effective way of reducing fire severity. And as he told Sam Bradbrook, investing in new fire prevention technology is the key to the future. So what we found is that forests that have been logged and regenerated, forests that have been thinned and regenerated, and forests that have been subject to prescribed burning all share this same response, and that is that there's this pulse of flammability after the disturbance. And that pulse can take several decades before the forest begins to return to a lower flammability state. So how does that happen? Why do we see that phenomenon? So what happens in a disturbed forest is that after the disturbance, after the fire or the thinning or the prescribed burning, often what happens is that those disturbances trigger a regeneration of the understory or some of the plants, some of which can be very flammable. The forest is also much drier and warmer and windier. And these kinds of things influence the flammability of the forest. And it takes several decades before the forest then starts to become less and less flammable over time. As the forest gets wetter, as it gets older, The understory changes in ways so it has fewer flammable plants and then over time the forest begins to restore itself to a less flammable state. Prescribed burning is always, particularly speaking from experience down here in southeast South Australia, it's undertaken before summer fairly regularly. In Australia, are we doing too much prescribed burning that's leading to higher danger? So what we're seeing is that after prescribed burning, forests can become more flammable for many decades ahead. So what that means is that we need to think more carefully about where we're doing these burns and how often we're doing these burns. Because once we start doing large amounts of prescribed burning, that locks us in to having to keep doing more and more and more burning. And so our perspective on this now, given the slightest evidence, is that we would be better to ensure that our prescribed burning isn't taking place in remote and distant places where it could very well make systems very flammable And alternatively, we need to focus our prescribed burning very close to people and property because that's what we're trying to protect. And we'll need to do it very frequently and very targeted. And I think that's very important because the window to do prescribed burning is getting smaller and smaller. And the costs of doing prescribed burns are very uh, substantial. And so we want to focus those activities where it matters most. So that's the first thing. The second thing is that we need to to start to embrace new technologies to be able to detect ignitions and fires very quickly and then suppress those fires very quickly because the best way to stop a fire becoming a big fire is to put it out when it's small. 
So new technologies and better focused prescribed burning to the places where it matter is really what we're on about now. Your study does talk about AI and artificial intelligence that's able to identify fires quickly. Uh, that's actually been put in place here in the Green Triangle region along the Limestone Coast, both in native forests and in pine plantations as well. Why is this technology you know, looking so important for the future? I think there's, it's not only artificial intelligence, but it's also the use of drones uh, and, and uh, unmanned aerial vehicles to be able to drop uh, payloads of water and fire retardant directly onto where where there's been an ignition. So I think there's a lot to do in that space. But artificial intelligence can be important to be able to to help us, for example, model where we're getting lightning strikes because there are parts of landscapes that are very susceptible to lightning strikes and then then ignitions from there. So being able to model where we're likely to get ignitions, where we're likely to get outbreaks of, of high severity fire as a consequence of that, and then being able to direct our, our management to suppress those fires very quickly. So artificial intelligence and new technology, I think, is really important in this space. But as, as important is Australia, South Australia and Australia, they're not the only places that are dealing with these problems with more and more fire. It's happening all around the world. Sweden, Portugal, Spain, the US, Canada, Greece, Turkey, you name it. These places are all dealing with these problems. And Australia's ingenuity and technology in this space can not only help other nations, but be a source of income through exports of new technology to to help deal with these kinds of problems. From your study and your work, particularly uh, the findings that you found here, do you think there needs to be a rethink of the way we manage fires in native forests in Australia, or are we moving in the right direction? Uh, I think definitely think there's there's a need to to rethink what's happening with with fire in Australia's forests. So there are plans, for example, in Victoria at the moment to burn vast areas of quite remote forest. And there's a court case presently taking place as we speak, a, a series of, of prescribed burns that will be in some over 8,000 hectares in places where there's very, very little property and very few people. Now, to me, that is a massive own goal because you're actually not protecting people and property, which is the aim of prescribed burning, but you're actually also making the forest more flammable and having major negative impacts on biodiversity at the same time. So I think we need to rethink this notion of large-scale industrial prescribed burns that often end up being very severe and very intense and creating a lot of other damage and triggering the forest in ways which eventually makes it more flammable. That is not smart science. It's not based on what the evidence that we're seeing now. And I think there's a, there's a need to rethink what we're doing in those spaces. As landscape ecologist Professor David Lindenmeyer, he was speaking there with Sam Bradbrook. And uh, I'll flog the website one more time because if you want to read more about this, there's a great article up there right now on the ABC Rural website, abc.net.au forward slash rural. Just time to check in and find out what's coming towards you in the afternoon's program. Nikolai Bailhart's hello. Hello. Happy Feb. Yes, yes. Yes. Pinch and a punch. Do we still say that? I don't know if we still say that. Well, I think you can say it as long as you don't do it because you (laughs) probably have to fill out a form and go to a meeting with HR. (laughs) We don't have time to get into it, but my my three-year-old daughter is going through an absolute pinching phase at the moment and it's... Trying to convince, trying to explain to her that it really hurts other people. It really does. 
was. It's uh, taking a little bit to get through. But anyway, that's that's an aside. We've got many more important things to talk about uh, this afternoon, uh, including a, a new spot we'll be bringing you of a Thursday where we, we want to try and um, find out a bit more about really prominent South Australians, the people that, that quite often have a, a face that you recognise or, or a voice that you'll hear and, and recognise, but, you know, a bit about them, but maybe not a whole lot. Well, today we're lucky enough to have the Governor of South Australia, Her Excellency Frances Adamson, coming into the studio to find out a bit more about her life and time growing up in Adelaide, but really incredible career in diplomacy, getting to very high ranks. So we'll be chatting to her this afternoon. Fabulous. Lovely idea. Thanks, Nikolai. Have a great show. Thank you. Nikolai Balharts, who'll be with you for afternoons with those stories and much, much more. Thanks for your company. It's one o'clock. It's time for the news. Lend us your ears. Download the ABC Listen app and find all our audio in one handy place. Tap on the ABC radio icon and go to our station page. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.